0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us to get out of our homes this morning, to drive here, to gather together to hear inspirational music, to fellowship with each other and reconnect after a week. And on this day, the Lord's Day, to worship you in a new and a fresh manner and to consider what your word says to us and what principles that we're going to glean for our lives. We humble ourselves before you simply asking that you would reveal who you are to us that we might conform to your image in Jesus' name. Amen. Knowledge is power. That's what Francis Bacon, the statesman, scientist, said in the 16th century, knowledge is power. If that is true, then this is the most powerful generation in history. Our store of knowledge is growing at such an ever-increasing rate, and its accessibility is instantaneous. You can get on Google today and find just about anything possible that is worth knowing or even not worth knowing it's there. Now, let's suppose you went to a birthday party and you were to give a birthday card that when you open it, it plays a song, you know the kind, maybe happy birthday or whatever. And uh, the person who receives the card will thank you for it, but later on is going to toss it. When they throw that card away, they have thrown away more computer power than was on the earth before 1950 in that one card. Staggering what we have learned from then till now. You can put as much informational knowledge on a single silicone chip as was in the entire library at Alexandria, Egypt, the largest in the world at that time, the ancient world, 700,000 parchments in that library alone. You can fit all of that on a single silicone chip. Someone estimated that if you took all of the accumulated knowledge from the beginning of history until the year 1845, and you were to represent that by one inch then all of the accumulated knowledge from 1845 to 1945, a mere 100 years later, would be three inches. And what we've accumulated from 1945 to 1975 would be the height of the Washington Monument in D.C. And what we've accumulated from 75 until today is anybody's guess. Our store of knowledge is increasing. But that's just... That's just informational knowledge. What about spiritual knowledge? What about knowing God? What Charles Spurgeon called the loftiest of all sciences. The greatest of all knowledges. Knowing God. I want to talk to you a little bit about that today. Knowing God. How can we know Him? And if we know Him, how can we know Him better? And why is it that some don't know Him? and even disregard Him. I have a copy of a Newsweek magazine from some time back, and on the front is the big letters, God and the Brain. And um, it says how we're wired for spirituality. Here's a portion of that article. This is from Michael Persinger of Laurentian University in Canada. He suspects that religious experiences are evoked by many electrical storms in the temporal lobes. And that such storms can be triggered by anxiety, personal crisis, lack of oxygen, low blood sugar, and simple fatigue. Suggesting that a reason some people find God in such moments. Persinger speculates that our left temporal lobe maintains our sense of self. When that region is stimulated but the right stays quiescent, the left interprets this as a sensed presence as the self departing the body or of God. Do you understand what they're saying? They're saying it's all in your mind. It's all in your head. God, it's all in your head. It's just your temporal lobe firing off. Now, it's true, God employs our minds, our brains. He expects us to be very active thinkers, but it's more than that. Knowing God involves part of that, but more than that, it's greater and it's more objective than that. I've always loved the story of the teacher who told her class to draw whatever their favorite thing they wanted to draw was, and all the kids bent their heads and started working away. As the teacher went through the classroom and noticed one little girl head down very, very intensely drawing, the teacher smiled and said, Susie, what are you drawing? And Without looking up, she said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, Susie, n- nobody knows what God looks like. And without lifting her head, without even flinching, she just said, they will in a minute. (laughs) Now that could have been Jesus' line. Because people didn't know God or, or understand God in any kind of manifested form. No one has seen God, the Bible says, at any time. But the only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him, declared Him, shown Him forth. Now we're in John 14. We're dealing with an upper room Passover conversation. It's Jesus comforting His disciples before He leaves. He's going to be killed the next day. And this final meal, they have already heard enough to cause them some fear and to be distraught. Jesus said He's going. Jesus said He's going to be killed. Jesus said Peter's going to betray Him. Uh, Excuse me, deny Him. That Judas is going to betray Him. And so they're agitated. And in the conversation we saw last week, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now we're continuing the conversation. And this time we see that Jesus and Philip, another disciple, have an interchange. Let's begin in verse 7. Jesus speaking, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. I really want to talk about two things that I see here represented in our text that we just read. Number one, roadblocks to knowing God. There's a couple of them, and the disciples experience both. And then resources. How can we know God better? Now let me draw your attention back to verse 7. And here's the first roadblock to knowing God as seen here. And that is an inaccurate comprehension. In other words, these disciples hadn't fully connected the dots of who Jesus was. In verse 7, Jesus uses the word known. Now watch, four times it will show up in these two verses. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Verse 9, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Mark that four times in two verses, Jesus uses the word know or known. Why is that important? Well, I'll tell you who it's important to. It's important to John. 141 times in the Gospel of John, he uses the word, "know." It's one of his favorite words. He wants you to believe in God, believe in Jesus. That's the other big word. 98 times it's mentioned in the book. But he wants you to know Him. Okay, Now, without going through all the language stuff, let me just say that John uses the word know four different ways in this gospel. This will help you. Number one, he sometimes uses it to mean knowing a fact, just knowing the fact. Here's the fact. Good, I know that. Here's another way he uses it. To understand the truth behind that fact, where that fact is leading. Number three, he uses the term to know in reference to knowing a person relationally. And number four, to have a deeper, fuller comprehension of that person's identity. That's how Christ is using that here. You should have known me, Philip, if you had known me, if you had really known me. Now, he's not saying that we're not acquainted relationally. This isn't Jesus saying, Philip, I'm Jesus. Nice to meet you they've known Him probably better than any other human being for the last three and a half years. These disciples had been around Him. And they were learning who He was, but they didn't fully comprehend His identity. They're still computing all of that in their brains. Do you recall on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus calmed the storm, that the disciples asked the question, Who can this be? That even the wind and the waves obey Him. That was their question. Who can this be? And they were in a three and a half year schooling process of discovering who this can be. Until Peter finally says, I get it, Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They knew He could work miracles. They knew He could speak really well. They believed that He was the Messiah, but... but they didn't quite grasp the deity part of it. Because of their background, their upbringing, the idea that God would reside in a physical body was foreign to them. Now, they will come to that understanding. As time marches on, Jesus will die the next day. Three days later, he'll be resurrected. When Jesus appears to Thomas, Thomas is the guy that connects the dots. And he says to Jesus... My Lord and my, what? God. My Lord and my God. I get it. I get it now. You know, one of our roadblocks in really knowing who God is, knowing Jesus, is all the baggage that we bring into the relationship. The baggage of our upbringing, our culture, our customs, our worldview. And all of that forms a lens by which we view God That's why a person will say things like, well, I've always pictured God like, or my view of God has always been, that's their baggage, that's their lens. Here's the point. Who you think God is, and who God really is, may not necessarily be exactly the same. They may be miles apart. It's true for any of us. So that's why it's important to understand who He is by who he reveals himself to be. He's been doing that for three and a half years with these men, and obviously they didn't quite pick it up yet. So that's number one, inaccurate comprehension. Here's number two, second roadblock. An inappropriate confirmation. In other words, well, I want proof. I want some visible, physical manifestation That's all I need. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Uh, yeah. That would be like sufficient for anyone. Do you kind of understand where Philip's coming from? Jesus, you keep telling us you're going. You keep telling us you're going back to where you came from. You keep talking about you and the Father being one. You keep bringing the Father up. Um, It looks like we're going to be losing you soon. If you just show us God the Father, we'll be happy. That's all we need. It will be sufficient. There's something to understand about Philip. We've met Philip before in the Gospel of John. You remember when Jesus was feeding the multitude, the thousands of people that came to Galilee, and Jesus did the miracle to feed them? Before he fed them, when all those people were gathered around, The Bible says that Jesus turned to Philip and asked him a question. He said, hey, Philip, come here. Where can we buy bread that we can feed all these people? And the Bible says it wasn't because Jesus needed the answer to that. He did it to test him. And Philip failed the test. Philip, where do we buy bread that we can feed all these people? Immediately, Philip's little accountant, left-brain, pragmatic thing kicked in. He starts computing. Okay, let me do 100, to 1000, He says, "Jesus, I figured this out. We're going to need 20,000 bucks, 200 denarii, eight months' wage for a common person's labor, and that won't even cover the cost of all this. But I figured it out. That's not the right answer. The answer is staring you in the face, Philip. His name is Jesus. He's going to do it. That's the Philip we're dealing with here." So, Philip says, I want to see God. Now, do you understand that that longing that Philip has, and probably all the other disciples had it, this longing is the basis, at least in part, for our worship. It's the basis for our worship. We worship in faith, but we worship with the faith that one day we're going to see God face to face. That's our promise. That's our longing. Moses, you recall, prayed something very similar. He said, Lord, just show me your glory. Now, why would Moses ask for that? Think of all of the manifestations Moses had seen. He'd seen a burning bush. He'd seen the Red Sea part. He'd seen a heavenly GPS system with a cloud and the fire leading them throughout the wilderness. That'd be enough. He goes, no, it's not enough. Show me your glory. And that brings up something very important. No matter how sophisticated we are or spiritually well-informed we are, at our very core, that's what we want as believers to ultimately see God. Which means all of the worship experiences we have now on the earth, no matter how good they are, will never satisfy you. They weren't meant to satisfy you. They were meant to whet your appetite. Well, I've gone to this cool worship thing. I, I flew all the way across the country. And it was the greatest worship experience. Cool. Are you done now? Are you satisfied with that? Like for the rest of your life? No. It wets your appetite for when you see Him visibly, physically face to face. Here's an example. When I travel and I take pictures of my family with me, if they're not with me, I take a picture, a representation of them. When I get really lonely because I've been gone for like a week or two, a couple of weeks, I'll look at the picture, a little two-dimensional image. And then I'll even talk to them on the phone. I don't hang up the phone, close up the picture and go, okay, that's all I needed. I can stay away now for another year or two. No, talking on the phone and looking at the picture simply accentuates my loss for them. I want to see them more than ever. So longing to see God, no matter what experience we've had, is at the very core of who we are. And that's the anticipation and the reason we now worship now in faith, waiting for the day when our faith will become sight. But something else. This longing to see God is often an excuse for unbelief. See, an unbeliever will say, well, I agree with Philip. All I want is to see God. You can produce God and let me see God, then I'll become a believer. I'll worship Him. But I've never seen God. I've never heard God. I think I've told you before about the Atheist who was having a conversation with a believer. The believer happened to be a Quaker. And the atheist said, have you ever seen God? And the Quaker said, nay. That's how they would say no. Nay. Have you ever heard God? Nay. Have you ever felt God? Nay. Have you ever smelled God? Nay. Ha then how do you even know there is a God? Well, the Quaker was a little befuddled by that, but thought he would turn the argument around, and he said to the atheist, Hast thou seen thy brain? (laughs) Well, no. Hast thou ever smelled thy brain? No, of course not. Hast thou ever felt thy brain? No. And the Quaker smiled and said, Then how dost thou know that thou even hast a brain? It's a very rudimentary argument, but I think it packed a punch nonetheless. Something else about this this desire that Philip has in verse 8. This longing is part of the root of idolatry to make an image, some representation of God, to physically represent Him. If only God could be visible, if only I could take transcendent God and bring Him down to my level, a human level, so that I can relate to Him and I'll carve an image with little eyes on it and a nose and a mouth and I'll worship that. It's the basis of idolatry. It's the root of idolatry. It's what people have done for thousands of years and even the children of Israel had all around them in the Old Testament. And I think that's one of the reasons people today will say, I looked at the clouds and I saw Jesus. You see Jesus? That looks just like Jesus. Well, I've never seen Jesus. I wouldn't know. Or, look, look, look at this piece of toast. There's Jesus' face in the toast. Or the tortilla. There's Jesus in the tortilla. Or in an overexposed reflection of a fender on a car. I mean, I have seen it all. It's their desire like Philip, to see God. These then form two roadblocks. I need proof, and I can't connect the dots. Now let's look at the resources. There's four principles I want you to notice to help us know God, and if you know God, to know Him better. Number one, by being in in His presence. By being in His presence. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Now listen to this statement. He's proclaiming his deity in an unmistakably clear manner again. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now, these words of Jesus, besides being a a statement of his deity, I I think they're tinged with sadness. There's There's a pathos in them. I've been around you so long. We've shared so many intimate moments in the last few years and you still don't know me. It brings up an interesting point. It's possible to be around someone and not fully know who they are. I've heard married couples tell me this. We've been married this many years but I feel like I really don't know him or haven't known him until now. They had been around Jesus for three and a half years. Um, cute little story. Years ago, we had the privilege of going to a World Series two games back in Atlanta, Georgia, when the Braves played the Yankees, 96. And uh, we rode the team bus, the Yankee team bus, because one of the pitchers used to fellowship here, got us the seats and got us the tickets. We're driving back to the hotel after the game. The Yankees won that night. They were all high. My son, Nate, sits down among the whole team, and next to him sits one of their coaches, the great Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. Nathan doesn't have a clue who it is. Sitting right next to him, riding the bus, talking it up, doesn't know who it is. Reggie goes, hi, I'm Reggie Jackson from California. Nate goes, I'm Nate Heitzig from Albuquerque. Didn't know who he's sitting next to. It's possible, like here, to be around someone and not know who they are. But at the same time, it is possible to know God when you have an open heart and an inquisitive mind, you can know him. And the disciples are in that process of knowing Jesus. And as I mentioned, Thomas will eventually say, my Lord and my God, he'll make that discovery. Now, if you're an unbeliever today, let me just challenge you to spend a little bit of your time investigating the evidences for the faith in Jesus Christ. So it actually becomes something you're interested in and you even dare to seek the Lord. Because the Bible makes a promise. If you seek the Lord with all of your heart, you will find Him. He will be found by you. Second, if you're a believer this morning here's my challenge start evaluating your time not in so much what you do for God as time you spend with God see sometimes we make the mistake of I'm so busy working for God you know you can work for God all the time you can be a pastor of a church and not even know him the church of Ephesus had this Wonderful thing going and a problem going at the same time. Jesus writes him a letter in Revelation. He says to the church of Ephesus, I I know you work hard, you labor, but I have something against you. You've left your first love. Remember that? You're working, you labor, but you've left your first love. You know what their problem was? I'll, I'll I'll paraphrase it. You guys are so busy about the king's business that you have actually forgotten the king himself. How about just taking a tad bit more of your time to be with him, to fellowship with him by being in his presence? Number two principle, by believing in his person. And what I mean by that, because you say, well, I already believe in God. Learning to trust him more. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And then look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father. Okay, stop and think about that. Who is Jesus speaking to when he says, Believe me? He's speaking to believers. They're, they're disciples. These aren't atheists. He's not trying to convince them to get saved. They already believe in Him. They're disciples. They're followers. Believe me. And in verse 11, the word believe is present, active, indicative. In other words, go on believing. Keep it up. Let your faith grow. You see, you don't just get saved by faith. You move on in the Christian life by faith, by learning to trust Him more and more. That was Paul's desire. He writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 15. We hope that your faith will continue to grow. Is it? The writer of Hebrews declared, Without faith it's impossible to please him. And whoever comes to God must first believe that he is, and second, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you diligently seeking him? There was a skeptical physician treating a patient who was a strong, vibrant believer. And the doctor confessed after the surgery that he performed on his patient. He said, you know, I believe in God. I guess I believe in Jesus. I'm not conscious that I have any real doubts. But I don't know if I'm saved. I struggle with this whole faith thing. The patient said, A week ago, doctor, I believed in you as a very skillful physician. I believed that if I got sick, you'd help me. But two days ago, I let you cut into me and give me some medicine that I didn't understand, but I entrusted you with my life completely. You can see the difference. It's one thing to believe as a patient... If I get sick, that guy's going to help me or could help me. It's another thing to say, I'm sick now. Help me. I surrender. I entrust my life to you. So here's my question. Is your faith growing or is it stagnant? Would you describe your faith as very active, very alive or needing life support? One of the greatest prayers you could ever pray is what the disciples prayed. Now, 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 get this. On one occasion, Jesus told the disciples, you guys need to forgive people. Well, what do you mean by that? Jesus said, if somebody offends you seven times in a day, seven times in a day, and comes up to you and says to you, I repent, you're to forgive them. Okay, that's pretty amazing. Imagine somebody walking up to you, slapping you in the face. And then afterwards going, I'm sorry. You go, okay, okay, I forgive you. Don't do it again. 20 minutes later, bam, (laughs) slaps you up again. And says, I'm sorry. Now by that time, by by number two, you're going to go, you know what? Don't you ever do that again. By the third time he slaps you and says, I'm sorry, you're going to say, I'm not going to forgive you because that's not real repentance. You know what Jesus said? Even if he says to you, I repent, forgive him. Even seven times. You know what the disciples said when Jesus said that? You know what they said? Listen, you'll relate. Lord, increase our faith. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's like, I don't have that kind of faith. Help me on that one. I'm not doing good on that one. Increase our faith. That's a good thing to pray. Lord, increase our faith. So, being in His presence, believing in His person, here's a third way that can help you know God, bending to His Word. Bending to His Word. Notice in verse 10, in the second sentence, "...the words, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works." Jesus appeals to the words they had heard Him say for the last three years. Sermon on the Mount, the Upper Room Discourse, all the magical, wonderful promises that Jesus gave during that time. You know that whenever Jesus spoke, and the Bible records the reaction of the crowd, sometimes they were hostile, sometimes they were very comforted. I mean, no one was ever unmoved After he gave the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, after he finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Listen to this. On another occasion, the elders sent the police to arrest Jesus. The police come back to the elders empty-handed. They go, where is he? We sent you to get him. And the police said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Oh, didn't you bring him back? wow, he could speak. His words were so powerful. So Jesus is appealing to the words that he spoke. You've heard what I've said the last few years. You've heard and seen the power of those words. Hey, if you want to know God, read his book. You want to know God, read his book. When you read his book... You'll start knowing God. His personality is revealed in the book. His will is revealed in the book. What he hates is revealed in the book. What he loves is revealed in the book. How he works with people is revealed in the book. You'll read stories about men and women in the book who encountered God. You'll read poetry in the book of people who worship God. You'll read letters in the book of people who spoke to and spoke from God to people. And all of that will form for you and for me a profile, if you will, of who He is. You'll come to know God through the Bible. That's why Martin Luther used to say, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. you want to know God, read His book. I believe one of the strongest signs of a real child of God is that person's hunger to learn more about God. Oh, I I read the Bible once a year. I'm not really into that kind of stuff. I don't really, like I have to read it all the time. Really? Boy, I don't know. My heart cry to this day is that I can know him. And I love reading that book. I love reading his word because he speaks to me in it. George Gallup Junior, you're familiar with his name. He's a pollster. He polls Americas, ask what they have thought about this and that over the many years. He called America a nation of biblical illiterates. Want to know why? He says, Four out of ten Americans, only four, know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Most Americans cannot name the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Some of us think it's John, Paul, George, and Ringo. That's how bad we are. Only three out of ten teenagers know why Easter is celebrated. They don't have a clue. Only three out of ten know why Easter is celebrated. You want to know God? Read His book. Bend to His Word. That's how He speaks. Here's the fourth and final way, and we close. By beholding His works, verse 11, be, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or or believe me for the sake or on the evidence of the works themselves. You guys have heard what I've said. You guys have seen what I have done. So, let's apply it because we don't have much time left. One of the ways to know God isn't just by getting information, but by seeing transformation. We we see Wherever Jesus is, He changes the life. Let me just tell you that I have the privilege of seeing and hearing testimonies of changed lives all the time. A couple months ago, I get a phone call from overseas. One of our soldiers stationed overseas calls me. He goes, I've been listening to you on the internet i got to confess to you, I was raised in a Christian home. I'm a pastor's son. I don't think I believe in God. I don't think I believe in Jesus. He had so many arguments for the faith. And it swallowed him up. And besides that, he was losing his marriage, he said. He just had a can of worms. Without going through all of his story, let me just say that today he's reconciled with his wife and walking with his God. And I got to watch that transformation over the period of time. God is in the business of Working, doing things. Find out what he's doing. Look at it and observe it and marvel at it. So you want to know God? Hang out with him. You want to know God? Learn to trust him more. Let go more. Surrender more. You want to know God? Read his book. You want to know God? Check out what God is doing. But let me say, let your highest priority in life is to know God. To know God. I close with a story. There was a carpenter, very good carpenter. was getting older and decided, I'm going to retire. I'm going to relax. So he went to the boss and he said, I'm done. I quit. The boss said, Boy, I, I hate to lose you. You're such a skilled craftsman. Do me one favor. Before you completely retire, I want you to build me just one more house. Just one more house. Will you do that? I said, Oh, okay, I'll do it. It was his last house. His heart wasn't in it. He applied poor, shoddy craftsmanship. Inferior materials. Just threw it together. When it was all done, the boss walked up to him with the front door keys and said, I'm giving you the house. Not knowing how he built it. I'm giving you the house. You've been so good. You've worked so hard. It's my gift to you. I'm letting you have this house free of charge to live in. Well, now, the guy realizes... If I'd have known that at the beginning, I would have built very differently. You're building your life one choice, one day at a time. How are you doing with that? How are you building that? What are your priorities? Is it knowing God? Is it to be conformed into His image? Is it, is it to get as ready for heaven as you possibly can? So that when you go there, it's like, oh, right, I heard about this place. You know, I kind of want to get to heaven and say, oh, I know about that, I remember that, I read that. Yep, yep, oh yep, recognize that guy. It's more like home. Build your life one day at a time. Father, we pray that we might know you above all else, that that would be our passion, our master passion. As Jesus cried out in his own prayer, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I pray for those of us who know you already. And I pray that you take us to a deeper and more intimate level. I pray for those who may not know you. Lord, I pray that you bring them to a a level of knowing you, of having a relationship with you by faith, and then walking with you closer every day. In Jesus' name, amen.